0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. We're going to continue in on our series uh, that we kind of uh, kind of revealed last, about a month ago. It's a, it's a series called Learning to Love cross culturally it 's more than a series it 's actually a ministry year theme and uh, if you're uh, this is your first time here thanks for joining us uh, right in the middle of, of uh, the beginning of that if i haven't met you my name's Caleb and I get to be one of the pastors here we're so glad you're here but yeah we we basically introduced a theme a ministry long theme called learning to love cross culturally a month ago and before we bo- jump into the book of Acts in a couple of weeks we 've been in a mini series we've we 've called Uh, We've called the beautiful community, a mess worth making. The Bible reveals this as God's endgame, okay? A, A united people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, worshiping him forevermore. And God's desire for this runs through all of Scripture, from the garden to the calling of Abraham to bless him so that he will be a blessing to all the nations. And it runs through the prophets, people like Joel and Jonah and Isaiah and through the Psalms and and all the way to Jesus, who told us that he came to get this for his father, a house of prayer from all the nations, united in him. This is actually his prayer request on the night he was crucified in the garden of Gethsemane. And so to finish up this mini sermon series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Ephesians because in many ways that's exactly what the book of Ephesians is about, the beautiful community. A mess worth making. Okay, Ephesians is a letter written by the great missionary and cross-cultural church planner, Apostle Paul. Okay, Paul is a Jew. He's writing to his non-Jewish brothers and sisters in a church he planted in Ephesus, which is this prominent cosmopolitan and commercial city in the Roman Empire. It's actually really famous uh, as a city devoted to a pagan god, uh, Artemis. And and so what we're going to do is we're going to just jump right in the middle of the letter in chapter 2, and then we'll look at chapter 4 next week together. Okay, so a little background on the letter before we jump in right in the middle of it. Up till now, you know, up till now, chapter 2, midway through chapter 2, Paul's been describing God's eternal cosmic plan to, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 says, bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ Okay, so it's saying Jesus is already reigning as king over all evil powers, and he's ruling with a special care, with a special attention for, for the apple of his eye, okay, the, the church. And the first half of Ephesians 2, or yeah, that, that chapter is, is pretty familiar with us. It's engraved on the front door of our church building. Okay, we, we were dead in our sins, but Christ Jesus died in our place and rescued us from sin and rec- reconciled us back to God all by his grace through faith, not works. But then in verse 10, the verse that immediately preceding what we're about to read, he says this, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so he ends this high rehearsal of grace with this proclamation that while God's grace saves us through faith alone, our faith is never alone. It brings works with it, not as a way to be saved, but as a result of already being saved. And we often wonder, what are these good works that the Lord saved us for? And really, the rest of the letter of Ephesians tells us that, and, and the tragic thing is we often don't look at the rest of chapter Two for any hints or clues, and, and it's tragic because this section of the of the letter contains this glorious invitation we really don't want to miss out on. It's an invitation from our God, to us, today, this morning, in Frisco, Texas. We don't want to miss out on it. and I think His invitation is well illustrated by a story Mark Roberts tells in his commentary on Ephesians, and and, and here it goes. Many years ago, my friend Stephen traveled to Berlin, Germany on a mission to secure a piece of the Berlin Wall. That wall, emblematic of one of the most menacing divisions in the world in the 20th century, had recently fallen. People from around the world went to help tear it down and to collect a piece of history. After he arrived in Berlin, Stephen searched for a portion of the wall from which to retrieve a chunk. The most familiar sections of the wall had already been torn down, so he headed to a residential neighborhood where the wall was accessible. Seeing an exposed portion of the wall, Stephen took out his tools and began to chip away at the concrete. Promptly, a resident of the neighborhood emerged from his home and yelled angrily, That is not the wall. That is an apartment house. (laughs) It's my best German accent. Embarrassed, Stephen stopped damaging this innocent building and went to find the actual wall. Why would my friend and so many others like him go to such trouble to chip away at a wall? Some folks may have wanted an unusual souvenir, but Stephen and thousands of others wanted more than a honk of history. They sought a personal connection to one of the most compelling stories of our time. East Germany began the Berlin Wall in 1961 as a wire fence, dividing the city into east and west. It separated people from their jobs and families. Later, the original fence was replaced by a 12-foot-high concrete barrier. This wall not only split Berlin, but also represented the fearsome division between the Eastern Bloc countries with their repressive socialism and the democratic West. For decades, the Berlin Wall symbolized the hostility between East and West that threatened nuclear annihilation. It was an emblem of oppression and fear. On November 9th, 1989, as an international movement was ending the division of Europe, the East German government decided to allow its citizens to pass freely from the Berlin Wall, effectively initiating its fall. That was a moment of great celebration, both in Germany and throughout the world. Berliners instantly began demolishing sections of the wall, chiseling off small pieces. A year later, the East German army began to take down the wall officially during this time people from around the world made pilgrimages to Berlin in order to contribute to the demolition of the wall and to save pieces of it in this way they could celebrate the reunification of a nation and the hope for a more peaceful world Moreover, they could participate in the story of the destruction of a real dividing wall of hostility. According to Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, or sorry, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, our text this morning, we can participate in a similar story. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Thus, if we are in Christ, we step in to this story. We experience life without the dividing wall as we join the unified people of God. We, God's people here gathering in in Frisco, Texas in 2023, can participate in a similar story, the destruction of a real dividing wall of hostility. And I would add that we have been participating in this story And that it's an exceedingly great story with a much bigger wall than that in Berlin. But to keep participating, we need the message of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 here. And I think this is what the message is. It's the phenomenon of our unity commits us to the process of our unity. The phenomenon of our unity commits us to the process of our unity. What's going to be key for us to get this is remembering. I know we haven't read yet. We're about to. We haven't read yet, but up till the point we read, Paul has given zero commandments up till now. And and, and we're going to start with the very first one. It's this, therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. This is the only thing he'll tell us to do until chapter 4. And through him, God himself summons us to remember three things. It's going to be kind of how we we organize our our time together. The portrait of our disunity, the phenomenon of our unity, the portrait of our disunity, the phenomenon of our unity, and the process of our unity. Okay, so by remembering these three things, we're we're going to see that we've been summoned, we've been spoken for, we've been committed to a process through a phenomenon, Okay, so so we're going to read one section at a time of the text. But first, we're going to look at the portrait of our disunity. I say portrait because uh, when we look at a portrait, maybe imagine a a Polaroid portrait. uh, We hold something in our hands in the present that was captured in the past. And so, gaze at the portrait of the Ephesians past with me in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so to to really understand the phenomenon of our unity, we need to first dredge up this this old portrait of our previous disunity. Okay, it's, it's like a home makeover. Okay, the best way to appreciate the new home is to look at photos of where it once was. That's the best way to understand what's happened. And so, so what's this past portrait show us about the previous disunity? One old writer put it this way. He said they were Christless, stateless, Friendless, hopeless, and godless, Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Uh, this is a terrible description, and it's it's what all Gentiles were once like. Okay, they, they didn't have Jesus, which is all the more tragic when you've read the first chapter and a half and you see all the blessings that are found in him. Not, not having Jesus means not having forgiveness. No means to be redeemed. No way back to God. That They didn't even have scripture telling them what God is really like and more. They were alienated from God's people. The Gentiles, even God-fearers, were only permitted in the outermost Part of the temple. Around this court of Gentiles, as it was called, there was a five-foot wall with a three-foot sign in Greek and Latin, and this is how it read. No foreigner may enter within this barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who was caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death." This wasn't just a wall of separation. This was a wall of hatred. There was no way in. It was, they were completely cut off. In a nutshell, Gentiles were not God's people. They were, they were strangers to grace. They were strangers to hope. Strangers to grace and strangers to hope. Imagine being there. I think this is actually not very easy for American-born Christians, because we just kind of assume Christ is part of our national heritage. A couple hundred years ago, Christianity had such a strong influence in founding this country, and so we just kind of fall into placing ourselves in Paul's sandals rather than the sandals of the Ephesians. But the reality is, we're not Paul here. We're more like the Ephesians, okay? Almost all of us in this room are non- Jews. And, and, and Paul is emphatic here. Remember that once you were alienated, you're supposed to, f- to like feel the weight of that emphasis. This emphasis, you, is y'all, like y'all Gentiles, you. For many of us in the room, our ethnic family history turned, turned because of a slave boy freed from his slave owners, who went back to his captors freely with the message, Jesus has come to rescue people like you, violent, savage, crude, kidnapping, pirates. He's come to reconcile you to God and me to you, you who stole me and ripped me away from my dear mother and father and siblings and enslaved me for years. Brother or sister, if you have any Irish in you, like I do, that's where we'd still be apart from God's grace. Not God's people, but a part of a violent, savage, crude, kidnapping pirate people called the Irish. They were so bad that the Romans didn't even want to touch them. The the Irish were strangers to God's grace. They were strangers to hope Itself. But God sent a young British boy named Patrick to the Irish with this message of reconciling grace. And the reality is that whatever people group or ethnicity you're from, there's a similar story there. And God's grace has changed everything, hasn't it? We're going to press into this message of grace that Patrick was preaching, but, but we can't delight in it until we first dredge up the portrait of our past disunity, separated from God and separated from His people. We're we're never going to cherish the phenomenon of our unity unless we consider our past alienation. We we need this Word of God regularly reverberating in our minds and our hearts. Remember who you were. Don't forget from where you came from all that you are. And all that you have is entirely of my grace. So the only way to the phenomenon is through this past. So dredge up this portrait and consider our previous disunity, alienation. Let this key phrase in verse 11 weigh on you. At one time, at one time, this was you. Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. But of course, this isn't all we're summoned to recall, right? The, the next time marker in the text indicates we must remember more. Time marker is going to say, but now, but now. This key phrase is, is as important as it is rich. Okay, it's, in verse 13. Read with me verse 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in, the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, this section we just read it describes not our past disunity, but the phenomenon of our unity. A phenomenon. What what that is is a remarkable event. And this is way more remarkable than the Northern Lights or a glacier forming or how stinking hot and dry it's been here this summer, okay? Uh, What's being described here is nothing short of a single new humanity. Church, the the fallen world has been in such a state that Blaise Pascal once said this. He said, all men naturally hate each other. All men naturally hate Hate each other. And while you may think that's way too strong, you at least have to admit that he had way too many reasons to say it. And so a single new humanity is the phenomenon of all phenomenons. And the phenomenon mirrors the one in verse verses 1 through 10, which says that we were dead in our sin, but God made us alive together in Christ. Now he says, I one time you who were far off, you who were far off, that's where you were, but now you've been brought near. These both describe the reversal of our spiritual alienation. It's a movement from death to life, from disunity to unity, from hostility to peace. Look, look at the phenomenon of, of all Ephesians 2 pictured by Sinclair Ferguson here. Uh, you can just look at it, read over it. This, this is the difference Jesus has made. You who were once far off, you have been brought near. You've been brought near. You've been made alive. How is this possible? Well, The answer is Jesus and his work alone. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, or because, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. The blood is a reference to the once and for all events of the cross. There, Jesus died for our sins. And he who shed his blood now offers himself as our peacemaker. He himself is the peace between us and God. That's, That's the gospel. Peace between us and God. But the gospel involves more the dividing wall of hostility that Jesus' death broke down represented alienation from God and from Israel, his people. And so the gospel is not only that we are reconciled to God, the gospel is that we're reconciled to God as a reconciled people. We're reconciled to God as a reconciled people. He's the peacemaker between us and, and God and between Jews and Gentiles. So peace with God and peace with others are distinct. They're separate things, but they're never separate. They're distinct, but never separate. Like two sides of the same coin. Reconciliation that is vertical is always reconciliation that is horizontal at the same time. Okay, the vertical tethers us to the horizontal, and that's why I say the phenomenon of our unity commits us to the process of our unity. We can't can't separate them. They're they're a package deal. And note this, people aren't united here around ideas or ideals. We're, We're united in an individual. John Stott puts it this way, or put it this way. It will be wise for us to observe well the phrase, in Christ Jesus, with which he introduces his whole exposition of Christ's reconciling work. It's not a universal reconciliation that Christ achieved or that Paul proclaimed. It is rather a nearness to God and to each other gratefully experienced by those who are near Christ, indeed in Him, in a vital personal union. This means that God's integrating principle for uniting human beings is neither intellectual philosophy, as in Roman Catholicism, nor political conquest, as is in Islam and Marxism, but spiritual redemption by Christ involving union between Jews and Gentiles, man and God, and ultimately heaven and earth. These are three alternative imperialisms, the first of mind, the second of force, and the third of the kingdom. Of God. This is so important. The phenomenon is only found in Christ. It can't be replicated or manufactured anywhere else, no matter how smart people are, no matter how strong they are, and how much they try to exert force to try to make it happen. Jesus is the only true and lasting peacemaker. He alone tears down the wall of hostility You know, Stott, in the same kind of uh, you know writing, he he goes on to say that millions have caught Karl Marx's vision of a new man and a new society, but Paul is presenting an even greater vision still, because the human predicament is something far deeper than the injustice of the economic structure. Pascal said that all men naturally hate each other, and so it needs an even more radical solution. Nothing less than a single new creation. How does Christ go about achieving this? Verse 15 says that, it says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Here Paul's talking about the ceremonial law which contained lots of regulations. It was a huge barrier to Gentile conversion, especially circumcision. A convert had to be circumcised, baptized, and pledged to keep the whole law, both moral and ceremonial. And Jesus comes and he puts an end to the ceremonial law, this, this barrier, because he fulfills it himself. And while he didn't end the moral law, the moral law is still binding on us today, he did put it aside as the way to salvation because the Jews were misusing it And the reality is that when it's misused as legalism, it's divisive. All all forms of legalism are divisive. So Christ abolished it. He set it aside. Verse 16 says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Okay, so Jesus came to create a single new humanity. And this unification, it didn't occur by bringing one group of people up to the level of the second group of people. No, he, he abolished both and, and made something new and better than both. Okay, that's why Christians, we don't become Jews when we're converted or, or messianic Jews. We become the church, neither Jew nor Gentile. In fact, this unification is much broader than Jew and Gentile. In other letters, Paul says that, the, that union with Christ does away with ethnic, social, and gender divisions. On Galatians two twenty-seven 27-28, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is ne- neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." He's not saying that the facts of human differentiation are gone here. Men remain men. Women, women. Jews, Jews, Gentiles, Gentiles. But inequality before God is abolished. Division between one another based off those differences is eradicated. In Christ, there's unity. Because we're reconciled to God as a reconciled people. Again, it's a, it's a package deal, and this broadness matters because while we know that divisiveness is a perpetual trait of all communities without Christ, most of us don't feel the wonder of Christ's work spanning the gulf between Jew and Gentile. The, the closest modern equivalent we might have is the Berlin Wall, the, East, the divide between East and West, but the, even for, for many of us, that still feels very foreign, but Christ's work spans all divisions—the ones you're experiencing. It's, it takes down all hostilities, not just Jew and Gentile, all of them. And the gospel's still tearing down walls of division and hostility today. In April 1994, a three-month-long genocide of the Tutsi people of Rwanda hit full force, and it didn't end until a million lives were swept away in its undertow, mostly by machetes. This tidal wave of evil left only destruction in its path. The survivors were left to stand on piles of bone and blood and tears. And farther after it was all over, hundreds of thousands of Hutu perpetrators wound up in prison. The country had no idea what to do with them because it would take around 300 years to give them all a fair trial. And so they ended up turning to the church for help, and the church proposed a process of reconciliation based off the radical forgiveness of Jesus and His cross. And it's been a long, hard, tear-filled process. It's still going on from what I can imagine 30 years later. But it's produced many people like Monique, who I got to meet in Rwanda 12 years ago. Uh, As a teenage girl, she, Monique, lost all her family in a a day. Uh, The details are too gruesome to share here. It's a miracle she survived. But she stood in front of us, kind of her new friends, and she asked, why should we forgive these perpetrators? And then she answered her own question. Who doesn't need forgiveness? Monique was a Christian, and she knew her need to be forgiven, to be reconciled herself, and thus her need to forgive others and be reconciled to them as well. Many national governments have sent officials to investigate how Rwanda is being so divinely restored because nothing anyone else out there is doing really works that well. And simply put, their answer was this. It's been in Christ. In Christ is our answer. Rwanda has become like an arena showing the whole world what's possible with Jesus as the peacemaker. Now, I understand. I know that this illustration doesn't land where most of us live. Many of us haven't had to walk through these type of tragedies, but here's the point. If Christ reconciled dead people to God and hostile people like Jews and Gentiles to one another and is still reconciling, doing this work, being the solution to groups like the Tutsi and Hutu in Rwanda, what cultural lines in your life can he not also overcome as the peacemaker? Like, what people do you see as too far off and, and beyond maybe peace with God or, or maybe peace with you? The phenomenon of our unity extends to them. It's mind-blowing. And and we're actually not told to do anything here except remember it. But I think there's something implicit in our remembering, and it's this, cherishing the phenomenon. If you remember where you came from, to remember is to delight in it. Okay, you're a Gentile, and Jesus came and preached peace to you. He preached peace to you, peace with God and peace with his family. So, delight in this phenomenon of our unity, and as you do, you'll see you're already committed to the process. That's the last thing we're to remember, the the, the process of our unity, starting verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ. Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we've heard, we've heard three things. We've heard, at one time, but now, so then. At one time, but now, so then. This indicates one more thing we're supposed to remember. It's really the big, so what of this part of the text. And it's mainly this. Remember what we are now becoming in Christ. And he uses three analogies to illustrate it here. A kingdom, a family, and a building. Christ's church is a new society. And so when he says, you're fellow citizens, he's alluding to God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is not geographical barriers, nor is it a holy site, or structure. Let's go back to John Stott on this. He summarizes it like this. God's kingdom is God himself, ruling his people and bestowing on them all the privileges and responsibilities which his rule implies. Okay, so he goes on to point out that Paul is writing while the Roman Empire is at its zenith of its splendor. No signs had yet appeared of its coming decline, let alone of its fall. Yet he sees this other kingdom, neither Jewish nor Roman, but international and interracial as something more splendid and more enduring than any earthly empire. That's why throughout Paul's letters we see him rejoicing in this citizenship way more than his Roman one. The citizens of God's kingdom are rooted in a far greater and more lasting splendor. We all carry around a passport that's far superior than that of any other nation. But he goes on to say more about the church. He says they're members of the household of God. God's people are family. And that's why brothers and sisters is the most common word for Christians in the New Testament. It's what all God's people are a part of. This is, this is so intimate. Across varying bloodlines, we have close sibling relationships that are to be marked by affection, affection care and support and, and encouragement. This is so intimate. And finally, we're building. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, their, their teaching, otherwise known as the Bible. And again, in this illustration, Jesus is key. He's key in the building. He's the cornerstone who gives it its only stability and its only direction. With, without the cornerstone the building's unity disintegrates its growth neither either ceases altogether or it runs crazy and disorderly and, and that's the same for the church without jesus as our cornerstone we 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 our unity disintegrates falls apart or we just we stop growing or we um or we go you know we grow in crazy directions without christ This building, the church, is also called a holy temple. And the point here is that the temple is where God's glory was manifested. That's what's being driven home here. The church is to be the place where God's glory is visible. A.T. Lincoln says, "...the church is the arena where the results of Christ's peacemaking are to be seen. The peace gained at the cost of Christ's death and realized in the church is to be preserved and demonstrated and to be proclaimed by the church in the world." Is stare at that quote and, and ponder the significance of who we are here. What's happening right now and as we soon scatter. We are the arena where the results of Christ's peacemaking are to be seen. Now in one sense, this, the church, it's, it's complete. What well, we're here here. And we have all the ingredients. It's all happening. But in another sense, it's ever growing. Verse 20 says Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Okay, did you hear the process language? Being joined grows into, you also are built being built together. First Peter calls every Christian a living stone, and as such, he he or she is being added to this temple, okay? We're not saved to be individuals, but to be formed into one structure, a spiritual building, the very place where God, our God Savior lives and reigns. It's not in a literal structure, but in and among his redeemed people, which is an international family with a worldwide spread, wherever God's people are found. It's an ongoing process, and so we should cherish the phenomenon of our unity. We've experienced it, but we can't forget the process of what we're now becoming. That's really what this year's ministry theme is all about, the process of our unity, because the phenomenon of our unity commits us to it. Church, we've, we've used this analogy before, but it's too good to not use again. God makes two people one in a moment in marriage, but be, you know, while becoming one flesh is an event, it's also a process. It's a lifelong maintenance project. Okay? We have to pursue oneness. We have to learn how to love. We have to maintain the unity we share, and it's just the same here. We who are in Jesus are one new human race. We're a family. Jesus brought you in the moment he saved you you might not remember that moment but it happened he adopted you the phenomenon has already happened but at the same time we are becoming one and so this means that Latinos and Europeans like Spaniards black Americans and Asian Americans African tribe with African tribe Caucasian Americans with Native Americans we're all one in Christ The dividing wall has been torn down, but we must participate in this work God is doing among us, this this process of becoming one. So we don't just pursue someone in the church because they're Latino or black or Asian or white or from that, that tribe. We pursue them just because they're a brother or a sister, just because we're already united to them. And if not in this church, maybe in the classroom or on the field or in the office, we, we, we pursue them because they're a fellow image-bearer. And God may use your love to help bring them into his family. But this also entails much more than what we do in this, lo- this local church and this, our local community. This means that we're going to be a church that cares about the nations, that will look to cross national borders with love and do our part in extending God's unfolding cross-cultural family, his, his global temple. So pay attention. We're winding up down here, but pay attention. Christ, who is our peace, came and preached peace. He, he published the good news of the peace that he'd made, and he published it abroad. How did he do this? I mean, this can't refer to his public ministry. I think mostly it's about the proclamation of peace to the world through ongoing generations of Christians. Okay, Jesus is still preaching peace to the world today through the lips of his followers. How else did he come to you? Someone preached peace to you, but Christ himself was coming to you with his peace through them. And this is a huge part of the process we've been committed to, going and making disciples of all the nations. This is the very thing Paul is doing in this letter we're now reading. Paul's a Jew. He's loving cross-culturally as a missionary reaching Gentiles. First to the people in this city dedicated to a uh, like a heathen God. You know, they were known for their temple to Artemis. First to them but then also also to us. Through his cross cultural preaching God himself is preaching peace to you and me. It's the very reason we're here as a family, and so, so we want to participate in this entire global process. We must do it, and that's why, why we're praying for the nations, and why you'll hear about in a moment uh, that we're going to be going through a, a global missions class starting next month, and we're going to be taking a mission support trip, a missionary support trip to Cameroon in March. Listen, let, let's end the same way we began with, with Mark Roberts' story of those Berliners. Like the case of Berliners and their wall, we do not bring about the fall of the wall. The Berlin Wall was essentially destroyed when the East German government chose to open it. The wall dividing Jews from Gentiles was essentially destroyed when Christ died on the cross. Yet like the Berliners, with their hammers and chisels, we can participate in the story of the wall's destruction and, in a practical way, even contribute to that destruction. We, along with all other believers, can live in a unity created in Christ as citizens of the one kingdom of God. Plus, we can live as blocks of stone in a new building, the unified temple of the living God, composed of all who are in Christ. Isn't that glorious? The phenomenon of our unity commits us to the process of our unity across the pew and across the living room, across the office, or the street, and also across the world. It's, it's really scary. It's also really thrilling to be in this unfolding story with each of you, brothers and sisters. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.